0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Medisos. This week, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Raj Das, who's a radiologist who also has an interest in AI. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Das. Uh, Could you explain uh, what your job entails on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Shrey, on this uh, really excellent podcast. I've I've listened to some of the previous episodes, and it's it's really great your team are doing this. So yeah, thank you for inviting me. Um so yes yeah, so um so I'm a radiologist so radiologists are essentially doctors that specialize in in expertise in imaging uh so um so firstly I mean I went to to med school and then after med school I did um my foundation training for 2 years uh, after which I actually initially wanted to be a physician so I did some training in medicine for 2 years um and at that time, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to pursue careers in, in general medicine. I thought about doing oncology for a bit. And, but I think in the end, I decided to apply for radiology. I felt radiology was a field that was very rapidly evolving. Um, and I think that I was quite, generally, I was quite excited by technology. I'm quite techy generally as a person as well. And I felt it's a quite a good balance between, if you like, medicine and engineering. you know. So, so it's an Indian parent's dream a son who's a, medicine, a doctor and an engineer at the same time, so so I felt it was quite a nice uh, field uh, and it was ever-changing and also radiology gives you the opportunity to also do, if you like a minor surgery called intervention where you use the help of um, uh, imaging technology to guide procedures uh, and so that's the field called interventional radiology um, so yeah, so, so I went into radiology training which is another five years um, and you uh, and that I did in Birmingham. And then at the end of my training, um, I became a consultant. Before I became a consultant, I did a year, uh, what we call a fellowship, which is kind of an expertise training, um, which I did in Canada, in, in a place called Edmonton, which is a very cold part of Canada, but it had a really good cardiac centre. So one of my areas of interest is cardiac imaging. Um, and so, um, so I, I, I trained in, in cardiac and chest imaging. And now I'm a consultant um, at Leicester. Um, called Glenfield which is kind of a specialist hospital dealing with mainly with heart and lung problems Uh, and yeah I've been a consultant there for five years.
0: Okay so from that where um so in terms of your day-to-day would you say it's mostly what kind of things are you doing on a day-to-day basis rather than as an overview? Yeah so so the typical kind of job plan of a radiologist so for me
1: um I am more of a, what we call a diagnostic radiologist. So I do less intervention and more interpretation of imaging. So the average week, so I, I do, so on a Monday, um, I do something called lung biopsies. So basically that's my kind of main source of intervention where um, I use the help of a CT scanner to to guide a needle into the lung to take tissue from any, any potential lung cancers. Uh, and that's... Um, that's kind of my Monday morning, and then over the rest of the week, um, I have four-hour sessions. It, it, it kind of your job is divided to kind of four-hour blocks of. Of some of it will be reporting CT scans and interpreting CT scans. Some of it will be reporting MRI scans, um, and then um, some of it's looking at chest X-rays. Um, a lot of it's involved in meetings with all, other disciplines. So um, because obviously. Uh, with any kind of diagnosis, the diagnosis as a, uh, on imaging, you only get one perspective. So it's always important to discuss your diagnoses with other clinicians who have obviously different angles of looking at the, uh, the patient. So then you can obviously give you give a much accurate diagnosis. Um, and then I have an ultrasound session. So ultrasound is also part of um, radiology as well. Uh, and and that's pretty much it. So 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 week to week, you know, Monday to Friday, primarily nine to five. And, and again, a lot of it, most of my week is in reporting. So looking at images, interpreting images.
0: Yeah, so you're, you've discussed your general day to day job, but over the last few years, we've switched more to working from home due to COVID. So to what extent has COVID impacted your job?
1: Um, well, it, it has, I think, uh, and I think radiology has been quite lucky because we are one of the few specialties within um, medicine where you can work from home, um, particularly with uh, reporting workstations. So the first thing our hospital did was they, did, they identified um, people who are more high risk or vulnerable group um, within the radiology department, the elderly people who have underlying health conditions um and they essentially um gave them home packs so packs is our kind of system if you like that we use for reporting and so all of that reporting was was done for them from home and the rest of us kind of we were given home packs facility um where we could do some of it from home some of it away and, and obviously we had to ensure that a home was a safe environment that we we kept confidential data confidential we had to go through certain levels of most of the home pack solutions are what we call VPN, so we have to use a password to log in to the server at the hospital, which makes it quite safe. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's um, the pandemic has been quite tough because um, imaging was one of the few things in the first wave, at least, which stopped unless it was for acute emergencies. But at the same time, um, pretty much most acute missions with COVID had chest imaging, which is what my area is, so almost everybody had a chest X-ray that came in with, with breathlessness with COVID. A lot of patients had CTs of the chest. And so we had to keep on top of that uh, reporting um, through the day, through the night. Um, but with HomePax, we were able to do a lot of that from home. Uh, and then like with, with all hospitals in the country, um, uh, because um, the impact was so much on the frontline staff, particularly people in ITU and a and um, a lot of our trainees, particularly, and some consultants, um, were redeployed. Um, so we had to work in ITU and a for a little bit to help out our colleagues. Um, a lot of them were in more kind of nursing roles, but because we've kind of lost the, the day-to-day skill of, that the expert, experts in ITU and places like that have, you know, intubation and stuff. But we can still help out. We can still help moving patients and do basic observations that we learned at med school. So, um, so yeah, some of it, some of us were redeployed. Um, but, but overall, uh, I think we transitioned quite well through the pandemic because we could work a lot from home.
0: Yeah, so you've, you've compared the two styles of working, before the pandemic and after. So which would you prefer? Do you think working from home is effective or do you think... Yeah, you so actually, um,
1: and I'm, I'm sure you found the same with speaking to other specialities, that I think before the pandemic, um, there was a lot of red tape about homeworking and about how we're going to manage this what about this what about that but actually that the situation forced homeworking on us when we had no other choice um and and actually what it has allowed is that it's allowed people to have a balanced life i think that um at least for me i find reporting particularly outpatient work where i'm not i don't need to be near and around the patient um, I prefer to do that from home because I get less interrupted. Um, I'm not constantly, people not knocking on my door for advice on things or, or things to sort out. And the less interruption you get, obviously the more um, you are focused on your work, um, potentially less mistakes. And so I, I now work a day a week from home uh, where I do the bulk of my reporting. And I prefer that I'm actually more productive and I feel that I'm in a safer environment at home. And also, it's a very sedentary job sometimes, um, looking at scans and things. Actually, at home, it gives me a chance to maybe go for a run uh, midway, or maybe just balance my my hours a little bit better, so I feel more mentally focused on my work. Um, But at the same time, I don't think I would be able to... um, Obviously, I can't do the intervention from home, um, but even a lot of the diagnostic work, I sometimes prefer to be quite hands-on. And so, I think... 3 plus 2 seems to be the favoured future for radiology that you have kind of three days at work and where you're doing teaching more supervised work intervention ultrasound and the two days you do more of the cold reporting if you like than outpatient work um, and i think that provides you the balance
0: and so this is a, jo- a question more related to your job specifically so, uh, what other kinds of imaging and scans you use to diagnose patients in? Oh.
1: Yeah, so um, so I think like with all areas of medicine, uh, radiology because it is expanding so much, both in terms of um, the number of imaging uh, technologies, but also the number of scans we do uh, and. So we've all had to specialise. And so my areas of interest are chest and heart. Um, And so within those, um, we've seen a huge expansion in CT and MRI particularly. Um, And um, so, for instance, um, I would say in the last 10 years, uh, there's been a big expansion in heart CT, what we call CT choriangiography or cardiac CT. So the CT scanner is basically um, uh, if you like a glorified x-ray machine, it's, it's, it's a huge machine that has, you know, multiple x-ray sources directed at the patient to pro- produce a three-dimensional image. Um, and in the olden days, scanners were just so slow that the heart was really blurry, so you couldn't really image the heart very well. But now the scanners are so fast that you can actually um, image the whole heart while it's resting in between heartbeats in the diastolic phase, if you like and and you can see the blood supply to the heart and in the older days um, the only way you could see the blood supply to the heart look at coronary arteries was by doing a, an angiogram which we would inject to die and it was a full kind of inpatient procedure if you like um, but now you can you can look at those coronary arteries with a CT scan which is quite amazing really so, so that's one of my main areas of interest there's a lot of research in that in that particular field as well And then there's MRI scans, which which use the principles of magnetization. um, And um, and essentially, the the big magnet will uh, flick the hydrogen atoms within the the, the, the thing you're scanning. And when they relax, they release a kind of signal, and that signal can be translated to an image. So it's, again, really clever technology. Um, And that's really come leaps and bounds. The big advantage of MRIs is no radiation. Um, and MRI, um, in my field I use it for heart MRI, cardiac MRI and again it gives you much good, very good functional data it, it shows you how the heart contracts whether there's any heart failure, whether there's any scar in the muscle and particularly now during Covid, um, I think we've used it a lot um, to look at things like the impact of Covid um, on the heart with things like myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart that, that, that can be associated with Covid um, and much, much, much less commonly with vaccines. But we do look at that uh, as well with the cardiac MRI. So that's been really important during the pandemic as well. Um, and yeah, there's so many modalities uh, that I, I could just talk on forever. But, but the main ones are x-ray, CT, MRI, and ultrasound. Those are the kind of
0: workforce modalities. Of- so along with all this new technology, obviously, the thing that you're getting most interesting at the moment is AI. So, a lot of people have heard about AI and like machine learning and related terms, but could you explain exactly what it is? What is AI?
1: Yeah. So,
0: um, so this is
1: kind of um, so in the last kind of, uh, you know, so going back kind of last 30 years to 10 years, that period, most of the research in, in the field of radiology um, was in hardware. So, improving hardware, improving scanners. Improving making scanners faster, more accurate, more spatial resolution. Um, but particularly in the last, I'd say, five or six years, um, there's been a massive expansion in, in research in artificial intelligence. Um, so it's automated recognition of imaging, um, automated reporting, and things like that. Now, um, so artificial intelligence is, is kind of a broad term um, just to define essentially the roles that you would expect a human to do. So, so, so a machine, um, essentially, thinking like a human. So, 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 uh, the task that you would normally expect a human to do is is, is done by a software or a computer. Machine learning is 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 a part of artificial intelligence where um, you use data that is fed into an algorithm or software or a product, and the machine then learns based on that data, auto learns and improves um and so uh and we don't provide that improvement it's given data um and and then it's basically makes an assessment and we give it the outcome which is most of the time we do we say well, we'll this data and the outcome's this um try and figure out how it's got to the outcome and then if it figures out how it's got to the outcome then we feed it more data to improve the algorithm so that's kind of machine learning and then deep learning is is the other phrase it's used a lot which is a type of machine learning which is really kind of the the big hot thing nowadays, which is um the use of uh, a machine learning algorithm that is based upon what we call neural networks. so it's essentially layers and layers and layers of um, of networks that um, that try and piece out the data uh, by looking at more and more and more and more um, sub-segments of the data um, to be able to to reach an outcome so for instance. And that's used a lot with things like facial recognition Um, and deep learning. um, You're kind of you're kind of structuring a kind of pseudo brain, if you like, with neurons. So it's it's modelled on the neuronal system of the brain, if you like. Um, And um, and that's really picked up more because we now have the computational power to do that um, with with newer um, uh, machines and newer computers. Um, And it's probably the one area which is the most exciting um and it's really revolutionized or potentially has has, has, um can revolutionize a lot of image recognition uh even within radiology but also within other fields of medicine such as dermatology and and ophthalmology and things like that Uh, so that's the kind of broad definition um and um, yeah so
0: yeah so you've discussed so thanks for your definition of ai and what made you interested in AI. So to what extent does a doctor contribute to the development of AI? Because AI is a very computing-based field and medicine and computing are somewhat associated to be different. So how does a doctor play a role in this development?
1: Yeah, so um, I think that's a very interesting question. And and the answer is, um, it's still not very well defined. I think it's, I think there is, To what extent... So in my field in radiology, um, AI probably is having one of the biggest impacts out of all fields. Um, and so we do ask ourselves... I ask myself this question, Is how much computer science do I need to know in order to help me help technology be able to diagnose cancers earlier or more accurately or be able to, to do things, um, to do my tasks more productively? Um, and I think that... Um, you can only know so much. Um, I think that the important thing is that um, the problems need to be identified by the people with the most domain expertise. So what I mean by that is to say um, if I have a problem that I recognise as, as a doctor, so for instance, um, I find that us, as doctors, we miss cancers, In this particular area of a chest X-ray, because it's behind the heart. So, if we could have a technology that can help us identify that part behind the heart better than us, then I'm provided. I'm happy to help that software company or that research um, university to develop a product that can do that. Um, Now, the problem happens sometimes when um, the technologies develop the algorithm for another problem and they try and force-fit the algorithm onto other clinical problems. And this is where the problem arises. I think that what doctors can really do is help really define the the clinical problem um, and say, no, hold on a second, you know, this isn't really appropriate for this because with our experience, we've seen that this can fail um, if if it it was designed to do this and that. Um, So... Um, there is certainly, particularly in America, where a lot of, as you know, medics um, apply, people do medicine after having done a degree before. Um, so you do get a lot of software engineers, mathematics graduates then applying to medicine. Um, and they themselves know how to code. They now how to produce their own algorithms. Um, and they apply, you know, to their day to day work and stuff. Um, but I think what you really need is a good team. Um, and you need to um, have so if I were to develop if I were to think of an idea what I would want is a team which comprises ideally a computer engineer somewhere who is very who's very good at analyzing data um, a research link within, within the university that can help us with, with any research grants or with any research design um, and you need all of them um, and so the, the best kind of areas where I would say holistic research is done within AI and medicine is a place like Stanford, where they have just amazing teams of doctors, of computer scientists, of AI experts, um, working together to solve a common problem. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the ideal model. I don't think it's necessary um, for you to really learn computer science, but I do think it helps, um, particularly if you want to do radiology, to, to have an understanding of the basics of AI to have an understanding, maybe even learn a language like Python, to have an understanding of how, how you know, you would get to kind of some bits of the clinical problem and, and how you would start to code something like that. And then you obviously need, but you need domain experts. You know, you, I can't pretend to be someone, a computer expert, having been a doctor for 20 years, and neither can a computer scientist pretend to be a doctor having studied for one year. It's just not possible. We, everyone has to respect each other. But I think the the outcome has to be the patient. The patient's the most important thing at the end of the day. Um, And AI has a lot of problems and challenges, which I can come on to next, Um, but those have to be addressed before you can go um, any further and you need to be in in the same team uh, and have the same beliefs for that.
0: So as you said right now, um, there are many challenges to implementing new technologies. What are some of the challenges in implementing AI in radiology? And when it comes to accountability and responsibility, who would you say takes most of the responsibility for that?
1: Okay, yeah, that's a really good question. So I I would say that um, the problems with implementation of technology, for instance, AI, um, I I would say there's lots of them, but there's, there's probably about three or four main groups. Um, so the first big issue is data. So that's um, both um, in terms of um, how applicable the technology is. So the data needs to be representative of the population that you want to use it on. Um, so so they can't be any data bias. So, so one of the reasons people talk about AI being really revolutionary is they be- that the AI scientists believe that the AI will be less biased than the human. So humans suffer from something called heuristic biases. So for instance, um, if you there was a study that was done where people looked at how many people were diagnosed with heart attacks in America um, who came in with chest pain into their emergency department. And they found that um, men who were under the age of 40 um, had a number one diagnosis of heart attacks, substantially less than people who were just over the age of 40. There was kind of a graph that went like that. And it's because traditionally we're taught med school that under the age of 40, um, heart attacks are less common. Uh, But there's no logic to that. Obviously, life is not black and white. It's a spectrum. But these are kind of biases that all doctors inherently have. And they try and avoid as best as possible. They try and be as objective as possible. Uh, But sometimes you do um, kind of go back because you're trying to work out what's, you know. So AI will not look at those traditional biases. And it will look at things more as a spectrum, like a probability map, if you like. Um, But at the same time, you know, if you feed data into an algorithm which is all of a certain ethnicity or a certain age or a a certain sex, then you certainly can't be sure that can apply to the general population. Uh, And and these biases do exist. So you need to make sure the data is representative of the population that you want to use it on. That's number one. Number two is uh, data governance. So who owns the data? How do we know the data is protected? How do we ensure that the data isn't used by second, third parties, um, you know, or it doesn't go to Facebook or someone like that without our consent? So then the question is about is data that's anonymous, truly anonymous? These are kind of ethical discussions. There's no right answer to these things. But, but at the moment in the UK, um, data of patients is owned by the hospital. So the hospital has um, has the ownership of that data and um, when we work with AI companies we ensure um, three or four principles are held that the data is used is not shared to any third parties, the data is has several layers of anonymization so we know not just one but sometimes two or three to ensure that can never be tracked back to the person, that um, any data that is used externally to develop a project is, 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 is deleted. So once it's being used to develop that product, it doesn't stay on their database, so it can be breached or, or gone over. And so these are called kind of DPIA forms, which, which companies have to sign to ensure we allow them to work with them. Um, but that might change. Uh, so in some countries, like Latvia, for instance, the patient's own data you know so some countries it's the patients that own their so they can do what they want with it you know they, they say the company approaches them and say well, we want to do research on your data to, to develop our product they can give that data to that company you know and then it becomes a personal choice and these are kind of probably national debates that we will need to have in the next 10 to 20 years going forward um so so data governance but it's really important for the, that that bit then the third thing about data is we need to show that we're always engaging patients because this is for their benefit. So we have focus groups. We keep, and we've created these in in Leicester that that we have kind of 500 maybe or 1,000 random people picked to say, look, you know, we want to detect cancer early because this is, however, for us to do that, we will have to work with some companies. And it may may be the case that we will have to share your data, but it may be anonymous and we will ensure that it's protected and all that. Would you be happy for this if it's in the benefit of society, if you feel that? And so, so then if they say no, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, and we got the support of, um, the, if you like, the, the patient's groups to say no. We, and then at least then we know that we're working in the best interest of patients, not just in the best interest of us as clinicians or as, as businesses. Um, so that's data governance. Um, uh, then there is um, the second issue, which is when it makes a mistake. Who takes accountability? So, so then there's an explosion you should call explainability, which uh, again is a whole field within AI in its own right. Uh, now, if I make a mistake as a doctor, um, there's a clear chain of command. You know that uh, you know I made the mistake because I was too tired, tired, and therefore I prescribed the wrong drug. Or in radiology, I made a mistake because that time I was so busy, I didn't get to look at that review area, that top right-hand corner of the screen, and therefore I didn't see the abnormality. And therefore, and then you, you know, if if and and everyone makes mistakes, um, and radiologists are so a little bit like goalkeepers, if you like, we're expected to make the saves. But everyone kind of focuses on us when we have made that one mistake. of, you know, out, even though we've, we've saved a hundred goals, so and and it's just, it's just the same. So so then you have, but but everything's black and white. So then you say, right, in future I will ensure that I make sure that I review that area in the future, and then and then you've got a chain of kind of. You know you know why you made the mistake the trust pays out reliability if, if, if that's relevant with AI um, the AI is not going to explain to you how it made the mistake it's just going to say it didn't spot the abnormality um, so so I think um, what you'll need to have is at least a recognition that if the algorithm is fed the same problem again, it's not going to make the same mistake again so I think if it manages to do that so You know, AI is quite good when you've got lots of data, so really common stuff. um, So if you, so, I don't know, 70% chest x-rays we report a normal, for instance. So in terms of excluding normality, an AI might be really good. Um, But in terms of, if if you've got an abnormality that's only, there's only 10 in the the whole, you know, whole world, uh, then you can't train the data set with just 10. A human is more intelligent to know that this is something completely unusual. Whatever it is it's just it's abnormal um but an AI may may read that completely differently, you know it may just because it's not seen it it may she call it normal, or abnormal, but it won't really know what it is um and it's the same example of you know you could test a Tesla you know to stop when it sees something, but but you can't test it to stop when it sees a giraffe because it's never been tested against a giraffe, but you hope it will see that so it's the same kind of thing it's 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 the kind of um uh so but I think. The accountability side of things needs work, I think. And in terms of who takes the liability, again, very good question. We don't really know. And I think at the moment, if we, as a hospital, if we use a particular product um, for the purposes it's intended to do, then it's the trust or the hospital trust that has to take the liability because it's, it's made the risk analysis say that we have employed this company purely for the basis that... We believe that we can, and in the same way as a trust takes liability for a doctor making a mistake, so it, it, will, use, it will judge A on the same standards. Um, but the difference is a doctor can say, have, um, you know, can say, I'm sorry, or can have that duty of candor to the patient and speak to the patient, say, look, this is what happened, we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Whereas a machine can't do that. You know? And some patients may not like that, the fact that it, it, there is no direct communication with an individual, that it has to happen at a trust level. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, so those are some of the main challenges. I think, um, so yeah, data, data governance, um, uh, the fairness of data, um, the uh, explainability, um, and I think, uh, like I mentioned before, the clinical problems. Many of the time, that the data scientists, obviously, and, and, um, and the companies, um, they want to do what's best for society, but obviously they, they, they want to make money as well. They want to become a big startup. They want to invent something that's transformative. So they're ambitious and rightly so. Um, but I think that um, ultimately, uh, the people that control the data and the clinical problems and the patients should control the narrative. You know, they should be saying, OK, so so sometimes the problems may not be as sexy, if you like, they may not be as um, it might be something to do with vetting, so as a radiologist um, before I know someone needs a scan I need to look at the clinical indication and agree that scan is required. That's a process called vetting um, and that is a very boring process. It has to be done uh, because we have to justify ionizing radiation, make sure the test is the correct test um, for, for a patient to acquire that test. And it's a manual process but if there's an NLP software or natural language process software that can read uh, a request card that can judge whether a scan is needed and that can save us 80% of time, that might be a better use of AI today than something that can automatically read a scan. Um, so so it's, it's, it's important to control the narrative of the clinical problem. Yes, yeah, so I guess those are the main challenges, really.
0: I was just wondering, we're talking about implementing AI. So with other interventions, obviously, there's like RCTs, there's randomized control trials and stuff like that. But how is AI actually tested to make sure it's correct, uh, apart from like just feeding it loads of data?
1: Yeah, so, um, and again, this is one of the things where I think we're going to see a change in the next few years. Um, a lot of the data that AI uses to test this algorithm is, pardon me, it's retrospective data. So um, it will look at huge databases and it will say, well, you know, uh, based on, looking at this database our algorithms are accurate as we know uh, in the real world if you want to really believe something works and makes an impact the best form of evidence is is evidence where you have a control group and it's tested prospectively in real time and ideally it's randomized you know uh, that you 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 know maybe even blinded so you're not you're not even aware that you're using an AR product and for that obviously you need to go through ethics and things um and there's not enough of that at the moment. And, and I think, I mean, we're working towards one project in our hospital um, where we're trying to produce um, a prospective RCT um, using AI against standard of care. Um, and, and I think there needs to be more of these, and there will be. And, and that's what's growing. I think, I, think, um, I think where you have AI versus standard of care or AI versus a control group, because um, that's when really people are going to believe how good it is, because, um, you know, the, the problem with retrospective data is if it depends on the data. If you have um, a, a population of abnormals, if you have, you know, um, let's suppose you're looking at x-rays again and say 100 x-rays of which one is abnormal and 99 are normal, and let's suppose that's the normal distribution in a certain population because it's say a screening population; they're not symptomatic, so look, so X-rays are done for screening for things like TB and other diseases. And then the, the company said, "Oh, look at our algorithm! You know, we've got 99% accuracy because you know." But actually, <laughs> if you just had an algorithm that just said normal to every single X-ray in that group, it would still have a 99% accuracy. So, so um, because there's only one abnormality, so so I think. And, and we just need to be careful. So when we interpret data from companies, we need to be careful that it doesn't have these things, uh, these, these terms called like um, class inference, I think it's called, um, where, you, um, where you need to ensure class imbalance, where you need to ensure that the, the ratio of that in, in abnormality is sufficient for it to, to be justifiable as technology. And, and for me, retrospective data alone isn't enough for me to believe technology it needs to have prospective data, RCT data, if it's really to be revolutionary, as they say it
0: wants to be. Yeah, so I guess after all that, in the end, do you think that AI in the future, as it develops, do you think it'll ever be able to replace what you do as a radiologist? Or do you think it'll become a tool in the same way that a CT scan or MRI scanner is a tool to help you do your job better?
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, who knows what the future holds? But my personal belief um, is that radiologists that use AI are likely to replace radiologists that don't, Um, because I just think that. And the same ways that, um, in 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 some ways, it's like using autopilot on one of the newer cars. You know, if if it you if you get humans get tired, humans make mistakes. And what you want is you want the technology to stop you from crashing when you fall asleep by mistake or you make a mistake or you, and and I think if it can do that, then I think it succeeded in its first role. Um, in terms of how what our role is gonna be as a radiologist, I think that maybe in the next 10, 20 years, um, what's probably gonna happen is that um, we will probably be doing more complex tasks where less data is available. And we'll allow the technology to do more kind of mundane repetitive tasks. Um, And but to do to get to that stage, um, we still need to test the algorithms and we need to make sure we're happy with them, they work. And for that, um, there needs to be a huge amount of work done by radiologists alongside technology. And it has to be a collaborative approach. It can't be one or the other. Um, and for that also, we need time because, um, particularly in this country, there's a massive, massive shortage of radiologists. You know, considering the amount of scans we do, we've just not grown as a specialty as much as the demand has grown. Um, and so our work is very precious. So for us to then spend time doing research, doing developing technology, but I think that it's a time where we need to to do it because because if we don't, then we'll find once patients start owning data, uh, then, you know, um, we may be in competition, which uh, we don't want to be, you know, we want to be collaborative. So, so um, I don't think it will replace humans. And I think obviously there's always um, hands-on skills. So, so the manual dexterity of things like robots and things um, is behind the software. So I think, you know, to replace, um, it might replace basic image recognition, but it won't replace the interventional radiology, at least for another 50 years, I don't believe. Um, so, so so, as long as there's always hands-on skill in your job and there's patient-facing, you know, but, but I think, I'm hoping actually that what Eric Topol, who's a huge leader in technology innovation, he's a, he's a, he's a cardiologist in America, he's written extensively on AI. Um, I think what he said is quite interesting. He's got a book called Deep Medicine, which is one of the best books I've read about what he believes is the importance of AI and technology. And, he kind of said that the ideal situation is to make medicine more human again. So, a lot of our time we'd spend doing a mundane admin jobs, doing, you know, uh, filling in forms, you know, documenting stuff, doing all the admin tasks, doing the mundane repetitive tasks. But actually, if the technology allows us to remove that, where we actually become more, as a radiologist, I would love to be more patient facing now, you know. I, you know, patients at the moment. If I report a scan, you know, it will be the scan results will be conveyed to the patient. Um, sometimes by a GP who doesn't have an understanding of how the scan is how I've reported. The scan um, they'll have an understanding of the medicine, um, but um, but actually, what ideally I would like to do is 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 go through a scan with a patient. But at the moment I just don't have time when I'm reporting. 30, 40 scans in a session. Um, But if I report 10 scans and actually let the AI do 90% of the work for the other 20, which I can just double read quickly, uh, then it just gives me more time to just spend time with patients to bring in them. And and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, scans improve diagnostic certainty, but also they reassure patients, they help compliance. If someone has emphysema in their lungs, or um, evidence of coronary artery disease, which I can show them on a CT that these are your lungs and that's what the damage that's been caused by the, the smoking that you've had, that you've done, or, you know, or, or by... Um, so they are, there's evidence to say they're more likely to comply with smoking cessation because it's a picture of themselves, you know, rather than a GP telling them or, or, or a physician telling them, you know, your cholesterol's a bit high, you just need to cut down a little bit or you need to be on a statin or, or a drug that helps cholesterol. So, so the impact of the images I feel can can be quite transformative for a patient. Um, So so yes, that's where I I hope AI will take us, make us more patient facing, uh, make us more empathetic in terms of getting more involved with patients, um, which is
0: the things that AI can't do, you know, they can't be empathetic, so